You're listening to an IOE podcast. Powered by UCL Minds. Welcome to the UCF staff room. I'm Elaine Long. And I am Mark Quinn. We are programme leaders for the UCL Early Career Teacher Development Programme. Why are we in the staff room? We are here because this is where the best professional learning conversations always take place. This is where problems can be aired bluntly and where solutions can be explored. Over the course of this series, we will hear the voices of different colleagues as they come into the ECF staff room. We will hear from early career teachers themselves and from the mentors and induction tutors who support them. We will talk about all things ECF, the challenges and the joys. So why don't you enjoy a coffee with us, perhaps even grab a biscuit and sit down to half an hour of ECF staff room chat. Hello and Welcome to the ECF staff room, Alison Wiggins. Um, Alison, you're very, very welcome. Alison is a lecturer in education at uh, UCL. And um, so, uh, as we always do, you've got to come into our staff room. We offer you a nice hot drink. Uh, what, what, would you, what can I fix for you? Um, my drink of choice is a decaf oat flat white. Um, which you probably can't get in a school staff room, but you I might have to walk around that. the corner to get yeah. that for you. Yeah, I might yeah. have to. While, while I'm going around there, can I get you a biscuit or anything? Do yeah. you like anything with that? 100% I need chocolate digestives if I'm doing any oh. level of work. It's very there's, important. There's, we've got a few of those stuck at the back of the cupboard. I'll definitely, I'll, I'll find one of those for you. That, very, very good. Uh, you take your seat, put your feet up and I'll get that coffee for you. Thank you so much. Uh, Alison, welcome um, to the staff room. We're really excited to have you here. And we're always really interested to know how people came to be doing the role that they're doing. And we know our listeners will be really interested in that now. So could you briefly describe your role and, and tell us how you got there? Absolutely. So I'm a lecturer in education and I'm also the subject lead for the PGC and social sciences. Um, I also run a module called Feminist Approaches to Knowledge and Pedagogy on the MA in Education. I also lead on anti-racist work um, at UCL across the secondary cohort. I think that's everything. I also do anti-racist work outside of university. So I work for some charities, Show Racism the Red Card and No Room for Racism. I also do some work um, in relationships and sex education and PSHCE more generally um, through the School of Sexuality Education. So that's what I do now and how I got here um, is I started teaching in 2008. It wasn't the plan to become a teacher. I wasn't one of these people who knew my whole life that I was meant to be a teacher. Um, but when I reflect on it, all the signs were there. Like I was very bossy and I really, really liked telling people what to do. Um, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I guess I just didn't really see myself as a teacher because of my subjects and my subject is sociology. And I thought that if I was going to teach, I was going to teach at kind of further education and, and beyond. I didn't really think it had a place in secondary school because I didn't learn sociology in secondary school. I learned it at sixth form. Um, so my friend said, come in for a day to this school in South London um, and just like shadow, do some observation. So I did. And basically I never left. I went in for one day and I fell in love with the school. I fell in love with a very particular class that I shadowed for the day. And then I ended up becoming their tutor uh, from year eight 
all the way up to year 13. So I knew these children as if they were my own. Um, and I worked very happily in that school for, for seven years, uh, moved to another school, got promoted, um, did head of department, head of subject, head of faculty. Um, and then I think I, I reached a kind of a plateau where I was like, it's either I go into like senior leadership, which, you know, I love being in the classroom. So I would I would always try to avoid that um, or I kind of do something different. And then the opportunity came to work here. So I worked part time in school and part time at university. And um, from 2021, I was full time at university, but I've been a teacher since 2008 um, and I'm not closing the door to going back to being a teacher at some point because I absolutely love it. Oh, that that's really interesting, and particularly your your passion for teaching. And I really identified with what you said about taking a form group of pupils from from year seven all the way to year thirteen, because I did that um, in one of my first schools as well. And it really is a, a joy to to see them almost grow up. They really do feel like feel like um, your own. And it's pleasing to see how much joy you identify um, in teaching. So that's one of the things Mark and I. Talk talk about on the podcast as well and one of the things we always like to highlight that the joy that is um in teaching what about your your current role working with um adults what 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 joy do you see in that or what joy do you experience in that that's such a good question um and I think you know people think that there's such a vast difference between the relationships that you have with students and you have with adults and I actually don't think that that's necessarily the case I think building positive relationships full stop is a joy in itself like you having a group of people who trust you and who are looking to you for support and guidance and direction um, as they start the kind of next phase of their life Kind of what you're doing when you're teaching year 12s and it's kind of what you're doing when you're you're teaching maybe year sevens who have just got into secondary school so for me the joy comes with seeing that progress and being that person that i can be with uh, for the student teachers when they're in university and when they're in school um and them looking to me and actually all the things that i've experienced and all the things that i've learned through my um career and my kind of journey in teaching being able to pass that on to someone else and see it work is absolutely incredible and then when they come back to UCL and they do masters or some of them are doing PhDs or becoming um, uh, counselling psychologists or educational psychologists then that joy like it's, it's exactly the same as when you bump into kids that you taught when they used to you know come up to your shoulders and now they're towering above you and they've got kids and they're doing this in, these incredible things and you know that you were a little part of that journey you, you know you have the same experience with student teachers because lots of mine now are mentors so I mentored them when they were student teachers and now they are mentoring my students and that you know that connection and then that um yeah all of that I think is really really important and it is yeah really joyful just working with people and seeing their progress and being there to help them um it means everything and that's why specifically I work in ITE um, because I think that that's that's where my my passion is it's also where my joy is so I need to make sure that I maintain that it's really interesting that you talk about that that pattern almost dropping a, a pebble in a in a sort of puddle and the circles going outwards that you know the people that you've taught become the mentors so you're able to to sort of develop those relationships and that passion and joy I think particularly around social justice and, and the work you do more more widely and that that brings me to my next question actually speaking about teachers in in the early stages of their careers you've been very generous um with your time and, and you've made us um a video for our enhanced program on module one 
um, on anti-racism. Um, and I know this is this is the topic that you, you have a great deal of expertise in, and we're very grateful that you're, you're sharing it with us. In in your video, you read you referenced the Runnymede Trust and the emphasis they place on the importance of racial literacy in schools. And I wanted to ask you a bit more about this. Why do you think racial literacy is so needed in schools? And as well as watching your video, of course, what are the best ways for our early career teachers to develop it? I think that racial literacy is needed so badly in schools because it's because we can't tackle something if we can't name it. I feel very strongly um, about the fact that it's um, in order for us to address issues that happen in a school, we have to be able to identify it and we have to be able to name it for what it is. And I think a lot of the time in schools, um, what happens is, is it's kind of reactionary when it comes to issues of race and racism. They deal with it when it comes to the fore. Whereas actually, I think that what we need is a kind of underlying shared language and um, understanding of the central aspects of issues of race and racism. Because everybody has a race and everybody has a part to play in this. And I think that sometimes schools only deal with it when it, it when it kind of blows up, when something explodes and something awful happens. Um, and also, you know, I, in my experience of working in schools is that actually naming it changes the power of it. So a lot of the time when I was seeing racism enacted between students, it was called bullying. And I was like, it is bullying, but it's not just bullying like there is a racialized element to this and therefore it for me it, ch it changes it and therefore if our people are able to kind of understand the different levels in which racism operates and that it goes beyond just that interpersonal name calling or people being horrible to each other um, and recognizing that racism exists in society therefore it does exist in schools whether you choose to address it and identify it or not it is there it is happening and we have to be like like we have to be proactive about addressing it. And in order to do that, we have to have this language that we all understand. I think if you were to go into lots of schools and ask teachers, give me a clear definition of what racism is, they wouldn't be able to do it because it's so tricky. And actually we've been trained and socialized to kind of avoid it as an issue because it's not nice, it's awful. But it, we, you know, the fact that it's awful shouldn't mean that it silences us. It should, for me, make it call us to action to actually do something about it to recognize this has happened it is happening and it will continue to happen unless we do something about it we've got to be the ones to disrupt that and you can only do that if you've got that language and you've got those conceptual frameworks like you recognize that racism is a part of a wider structure of oppression to do with um scientific racism to do with the levels of racism and it operating on systemic and institutional levels as well as operating kind of between um, people and in like particular spaces. So I think racial literacy for me, and even when I heard the term, I was like, that makes so much sense because as a sociologist, these things are kind of ingrained in me. Like I kind of understood them from when I first started um, learning sociology when I was in sixth form. But I recognise not everybody has that. Unless you study sociology or something that has racism actually on its curriculum, how are you going to figure this out? Um, so I feel like if we were to give teachers and people who work in schools opportunities to reflect on what they do know and to learn what they don't know, we can create an, an atmosphere where people are not scared of it. Um, because I think that that fear creates silence and that silence just in, enables things to continue as they are and nothing changes. That, that fear is um, tangible though, isn't it? And we hear it yeah. a lot because people do say when we're in this 
in this uh, field that, oh, you know, I don't know the right words to use. We're not allowed to say this anymore. We used to say that. Do you, do you, do you uh, come across this when you're working with uh, student teachers that they've got a kind of uh, reluctance to name things because they don't want to misname things. Yeah, absolutely. And that is, you know, that fear is legitimate. Like it's it's okay to be scared because of course you don't want to offend and upset someone, but remaining silent when you see things that are happening that are wrong is mm. for me worse. So I feel like, yeah. you know, saying the words, like I remember speaking to a student teacher who thought that they weren't allowed to say that somebody was black. And I was like, you are allowed to say that somebody is black like that's and or you can ask them how they identify and when they say i identify as as black or black british or black african or black caribbean then that's okay but they were so scared to eat they thought it was offensive yeah um and i i had to explain to them it's not offensive Like there's nothing inherently wrong with being black it's something to be proud of but you being scared to say it creates a barrier between you and that student so you have to recognize that not everything um, yeah, so sometimes the way that we've been, as we say, we're kind of brought up to just keep quiet about it and not mention it because it's like impolite and um, it's like upsetting for people. Yeah, that that those layers of silence, I think, build up in people and it means that they then become kind of mute in situations of injustice or situations that are happening because they're too scared of doing the wrong thing that they do nothing. Um, and I think that part of the learning process, as we all know, is that you make mistakes, you recognise those mistakes, sometimes you have to apologise for them, sometimes you have to do something restorative, but it that is a better process than you just kind of going along, avoiding everything and, and keeping quiet. It's interesting as well, Alison, because, you know, when I was working as a leader in a school, sometimes the first response to think about how we develop anti-racism is to think about the curriculum and jump to the curriculum and think about, you know, whose voices are included in the curriculum, whose voices are excluded. But of course, I think what I learned definitely in my anti-racism journey is there's a step before that, which is racial literacy, because I started to realise, but who's designing this curriculum and what lens are they shining on it and do they need to develop their racial literacy I needed to develop my racial literacy and I needed to model that um, as, as a leader as well but until you've ha you've got that you can't really even begin to think about the curriculum because it's the the lens that you shine on on everything um and and I, i'm just interested if you think there are any more barriers in school you talked about one of those barriers being fear and people being scared of getting things wrong are there any other barriers that you see that prevent people from developing racial literacy in in schools i think that there in schools there's an idea that things are kind of okay now in terms of kind of there being harmony and, and kind of this uh, sometimes in schools they have a very colorblind approach that they're, they're not mm. really seeing things for what they are so I think that sometimes um, issues of race or racism are seen as something that's out there not something that's in here right so maybe and this is what I kind of said to, um, to my student teachers is that racism is happening whether or not you acknowledge it it is happening in your classrooms people are using racial slurs young people sometimes do feel unsafe in school because of racism and sometimes that's interpersonal race, racism that's happening with their peers but sometimes it's the way that schools are treating them because of the racial group that they belong to if you have a uniform policy that discriminates against people who have curly hair like me or have dreadlocks or have afros or have cane rows or have braids 
you are making that child psychologically unsafe in your space. You are making them feel like they don't belong. And that is an issue that should trouble every single teacher, not just the teachers of colour and not just the teachers who have that level of racial, racial literacy. It's really important that we recognise that this is racism is a societal issue. But for me, it's a safeguarding issue. If young people are coming into school and they are feeling like this and experiencing it day in and day out, both in their um, peer groups and in kind of the wider institution, that is a problem. Um, and for me, like the barriers are, of fear are definitely there. Not actually understanding that there is a problem is another one or, or being in denial about the issue itself. Um, being like, well, I haven't heard anyone say the N-word, so there's no racism in my school. That is not it. You have to understand racism as something that is systemic. It is something that is pervasive across all aspects of society. And the sooner you realise that and the, you realise the part you have to play in disrupting and doing something about that, the sooner we can get things moving. But what I don't want is another generation of teachers to come in and be like, well, if racism comes up, I know how to deal with it. Otherwise, I'm just going to ignore it. No. It is happening. It is something you have the capacity and the influence and the position to be able to address, regardless of your subject and regardless of the nature of the children that you teach. Because the other barrier is people thinking, well, racism isn't my problem because I only teach white kids. Of course, it's your problem if you only teach white kids. Like, it's really important that we recognise everyone has a race. Like everyone has a race and everybody has a part to play in racism, in addressing racism. Racism is everybody's problem and therefore all it's going to take all of us to address it. If it's only the black and brown people doing the work, nothing is going to change. So I think that recognising that it is a real and current issue, that it has a negative effect on the learning of your pupils are two things that can change your perspective about your role to play in it. Um, but the barriers are definitely that people are scared, people because they don't see the, the very stereotypical types of racism, they feel like they don't really exist or they're not really important, or they feel like because of the identities of the students that they teach or the area that they teach in, that it's not really their problem. And, and I think it's everybody's problem and therefore everybody has to address it. Yeah. Um, th this is a staff room, but it's not just any kind of staff room. This is an ECF staff room. <laughs> and and it's really, really interesting, I think, when you when you start rereading the framework and uh, actually read the framework from a perspective of anti-racism it's really interesting how the language sort of almost changes in front of you and i i, I did this in preparation for this podcast and and looked at uh, just you know the, the first set of statements and i'll read some of the marks statement 1a from the uh, early careers framework is about using intentional and consistent language uh, to communicate our belief in pupils' academic potential. So there's one. Um, the rest of, you know, statements 1.1, 1.2, 1.3 remind us that teachers have the ability to affect the well-being and motivation of pupils, that we are role models, um, that we influence the values and behaviours of the pupils that in, front, in front of us, and that people outcomes are affected by our expectations of them. Now, just saying those things out loud, in the context of the conversation we've been having, Alison, it's pretty clear, isn't it, that the, even the, the framework itself is saying we need to take this really, really seriously from an anti-racist perspective. And, uh, and what I'm hoping you, you have for us is some examples of this, of, you know, uh, new teachers you've been working with, perhaps, where you can see that um, we've got teachers who are aware of those behaviours that they, that they uh, demonstrate in their own classroom through that, from an anti-racist perspective. 
And maybe you can share some of those examples so that, you know, um, some of our new teachers might be listening to the podcast, will pick up some ideas from 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 your experience. Mm. So I think that, um, like you said, it, it is about kind of reframing some of those statements through the lens of anti-racism and recognising that there is so much that is inherent in what it is that we do in terms of our um, our intention to be equitable to all of our students. Um, and I think that one of the foundational things that I teach my student teachers is the difference between equity and equality. That is not about going into your classroom and, teach and um, treating everybody the same. And when we talk about inclusion in teaching, generally we're talking about inclusion in terms of like uh, additional needs or kind of specific abilities that the students have. And they don't really see it through the lens of the um, their gender, their migration status, their racial um, group, their religious um, uh, beliefs, all of those kind of things are all part of inclusion as well. So thinking about how we can bring that into our classroom, not because we have to, but because we see it as inherently beneficial to the students. So with my um, student teachers, when we kind of talk about this, um, I'm very lucky in that obviously I teach sociologists, so we are legitimately allowed to talk about these things in, in our lesson because they're part of the curriculum. But actually, it's not just about what, what we are teaching, it's about how we're teaching it. So um, we practice culturally responsive pedagogy. So I emphasize the importance of you as a student teacher going in and getting to know your students, not getting to know what their needs are, whether they're EAL or whether they're people premium, but actually like, who are you? Where are you from? Where's your family from? What um, what are the things that kept matter to you? Where is it you're going? What is it you want to do in your life? Like figuring out all of those things and then building that knowledge into your curriculum and the way that you're teaching your students. So we use culturally responsive pedagogy as an approach to teaching and learning kind of in the lessons. Um, it's about the resources that they use. It's about them using their racial literacy to address these issues really clearly and consistently from the outset. So they're not talking about issues of race and racism when it comes up on the curriculum. They're talking about it in terms of what we understand about identity or what we understand about differential educational achievement in schools or what we understand. So they're bringing it in all of the time and they're not scared to do that. They're not just waiting for this one opportunity where they're le legitimately allowed to do it. But they also do things like uh, one of my student teachers last year got really involved in planning for Black History Month and she was a white woman teacher. And the kids mm. were like, this white woman cares about Black History Month. They couldn't believe it because they've never seen it before because Black History Month for them was something that the black teachers in the school did. That was it. Right. So it, um, it was the same for South Asian History Month um, and thinking about the ways in which the students when they are in their practice, are trying to tailor their approach based on the young people that they have in front of them, but also kind of um, underlying that is their kind of understanding of the responsibility that they're going to do this in an anti-racist way. So that they're going to do this in a way that addresses um, the issues that are that need to be discussed in the lesson, but are also doing it in a way that recognises the context that they're working in and the young people that they have in front of them. Um, and it's also something that I think we also need to recognise that it's not just young people that are suffering because of racism in schools, it's also the teachers and the staff as well. Yeah. Um, so I feel like an acknowledgement of that and recognising that there are different um, challenges sometimes that are faced by student teachers of colour going into um, particular context and working environments is really important and what I've trained my teachers to do is to advocate for themselves so there was a student who went in and there was no halal food in the school canteen and she was like well I'm just gonna have to bring in food every day I was like no you need to ask them why there isn't halal food in the canteen and see if there's anything they can do about it 
And she was very reluctant to make a fuss. She thought it was yeah. making a fuss. And I was like, no, no, that's the definition of inclusivity. Like the fact that you can't eat in mm. with everybody else is is wrong. And they have mm. to do something about that. And guess what? It took them a while, but they did. Mm. So it is about speaking up and speaking out. It's about observing what's going on. And it's about making a, a conscious and deliberate effort to address the things that you think need to be addressed. Um, both in terms of your teaching and learning of your classes, but also in terms of your your wider responsibilities to the staff and the students at the school. Um, so yeah, sorry, that's a long-winded answer, but I hope no, that. not at all, Alison. But it it does make me think, though, that um, you know you, that last example you gave of the teacher who wants to eat halal and the courage that she needed to be reminded of in order to go back into the school and 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 advocate on her behalf. Is that something that you see as another barrier that it that, that that it requires young teachers, new teachers in the profession to actually kind of gird their loins a little bit to go mm -hmm. and have these discussions either with their own classes or with the leadership of the school? And is that is that is that a barrier for 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 some of the trainees and young teachers that you've worked oh, with? Absolutely, and I, I think it's a barrier anyway because I think student teachers, and I'm actually going to teach about this tomorrow. They're in a really difficult position in schools because they're expected to yeah. act as if they're a member of staff, but they're not really a member of staff. They're like a guest, so they feel like I'm here. I'm really lucky to be here to work in the school. These people are giving me their time and their expertise, kind of for nothing. Let, I need to just keep quiet and be small yeah. and just not make a fuss and I'm just like no if you this is the only opportunity you're ever going to have to be in this position where actually it's the responsibility of the staff to make sure that you're okay so you need to speak up for yourself you cannot expect people to just know what it is that you need and want in order for you to flourish in the school you need to make it clear um, and you need to say it with a smile on your face you don't need to be you know you don't need to get annoyed about things you just need to articulate clearly and be confident that what you're saying you, you know is correct that you're entitled to or worthy of this particular consideration whether it's to do with you know the food that you're eating whether it's to do with the space that you have whether it's to do with a particular you know there was one of my students who had um additional needs and she was like oh I don't want to tell them because I don't want them to treat me differently and I was like but you need to be treated differently otherwise you're going to struggle and mm -hmm. that's okay like there's nothing wrong with that but in order, and I think it's a really powerful message that actually if they can advocate for themselves, then they recognise what it is for the students to be able to advocate um, for themselves and maybe we'll be able to support them in that by saying this happened to me and this is how we can make sure that it doesn't happen to you. Um, so, yeah, I do think it's a barrier and I do think it's something that all student teachers kind of have to grapple with because, as I said, they're in this really in-between yeah. space um, and, and when they're and in schools. And ECTs do too somewhat, although of course they're not trainees, but they are at the very beginnings of their careers and they probably don't want to step on too many toes and they're feeling a bit humble about what they do and don't know. But actually, I think one of the things we tried, Elaine, to get across in our programme, don't we, is that we we want uh, ECTs to see themselves not, 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 not as novices all of the time, but actually as colleagues and ever more important colleagues to amongst their in their teams and across their across their staff rooms and this is this is how you be a good colleague isn't it this you're mm -hmm. you are you start by advocating for yourself but actually you're advocating for others Everyone, um yeah. in the staff room and in the classroom Absolutely. and i think I think important uh, lessons there probably for induction tutors and people in, in school that are responsible for creating professional learning 
cultures because our attention can go to the curriculum and you know what, what do ECTs need to know about cognitive science but of, of course actually you need to take that a step back and think about if, if you're not creating an inclusive culture in your school in in the first place that's the first thing you, you need to do before you even think about that development curriculum because everyone's entitled to feel that that sense of belonging and mm -hmm. feel like they can uh, express their identity freely and, and be who they want to be and that is absolutely a, a responsibility of leadership really which is one thing we haven't talked so much about and I also sort of see this through the angle of, of leadership as well and and the people that should be prioritizing these things but maybe we don't well, I don't think we do prioritise those things um, as, as highly as we need to. And I guess that kind of leads to the next question, because we were thinking a lot about um, curriculum here. And, you know, as Mark rightly points out, when we shine a lens um, on those statements in, in the ECF, such as the fact that um, teachers are role models that influence the values and behaviours of pupils and that pupil outcomes are affected by our expectations of them. When we shine an anti-racism lens on that, that has some really powerful implications of teachers. But anti-racism is, is not mentioned explicitly um, in the early career framework programme. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I'm not very happy. Um, <laughs> I feel like, as I said, there is power in naming things. And I, I wish I would have known this when I was younger because I let so many things go that happened to me because I couldn't name it. I couldn't name a microaggression. Like I, I didn't have the language to be able to do those kind of things. And I think that if you're gonna, like I said, I think these things need to be intentional. Like it has to be part of what it is that you're doing. It has to be part of any kind of EDI work that you're doing. And it should be something that is explicit because we know that it is a real and pervasive problem that significantly harms both staff and students and I just feel like if there was anything else happening in school that we said this is significantly it would be addressed wouldn't it of course it would um, but in the in this issue it's just kind of left sometimes to individuals in schools who are not teachers like I I wasn't part of the leadership team when I started the anti-racist working group in my school I just saw a need and I had to address it because morally and kind of ethically I couldn't just let it go like I couldn't so I gave myself more work I involved more people I did all of this because I knew that it was important but it shouldn't just come, it shouldn't be left to individuals, it shouldn't just be left to chance that this is going to happen, it should be something that is intentional and that's built into the frameworks with which you're working. I always say that if this kind of work was part of offset um, criteria, we would, we would see this clarity, we would see this intentionality, we would see this very specific approach being used, but because it's not, it's just kind of something that seems to be viewed in some schools as like an optional extra, um, but it, it just isn't. And as I said, it doesn't matter if every single person in your school is white. It doesn't mean that you are exempt from addressing issues of race and racism that we know kind of happen everywhere. And we all need to be part of recognising and dealing with all of those things, because otherwise our society is going to continually go down the path where we are treating particular people in a way that we, we absolutely shouldn't be. Um, and I wish that it was more intentional. Like I we now have an um, anti-racist framework for ITE. I feel like everybody and again but that's an optional thing so universities choose whether or not to engage with this I don't think it should be a choice if you you know if you're serious about equity and inclusion then this has to be part of what it is that you're doing at a fundamental and foundational level 
um, not just something that, you know, it just have, kind of happens by accident. If you happen to know someone or happen to have read a book or, or you know, an incident happened that you dealt with that made you engage with this. It shouldn't be like it should be part for me, particularly in school, like it's a safeguarding issue. So if we ha if, if it's compulsory that you do safeguarding training, why is it not compulsory that you do training in issues of race and racism? Yeah, no, I, I, th I think that's really interesting and a powerful argument. And it's interesting that you mentioned Ofsted criteria because because often what's measured is sadly what, what people um, pay pay attention to in schools. But but the line that really struck me is this is too important to leave to chance. You know, we, we can't just leave it to chance and have it as an added extra that perhaps the the challenge for policymakers is, is to build this into the structure of school. So it's a priority for everyone. And that, that actually the, the way they're addressing it is, is, is something that they're supported um, to do and, and, and that we, we really evaluate the progress of that and it's built into evaluation models um, in, in schools as, as well. And I think that, that there's so much um, work to be done on that. And I think you present a really interesting provocation there that people really uh, need to, to stand up and, and, and listen to um, because I, yeah, I really agree with you. It, it's a provocation, not just for policymakers, it's also for us as well, isn't it? Yeah. Um, because because we, we, you know, we point we point out that the the the, the framework is not doesn't you know is silent um, about anti-racism, but you know so is pretty much the program that we wrote um, mm -hmm. on the basis of that framework. I think you know you you'd, you'd be you know Alison, you'd be pretty appalled. I think if you look through the detail of our program and and, and we're, we're sifting through for messages that we were trying to um you know um give to ects and mentors fortunately we do have an opportunity to address that because the framework does isn't static and we will be asked at some point very soon to start you know writing new materials and i think that's um and that you aren't the first person who's come into our staff room our ecf staff room and posed as a challenge like this you know things that the framework and our program have been relatively silent on so so i think you know it's a learning experience for us as well um, and it's, you know, and it's a responsibility as well, because, as you say, if uh, if it's, um, you know, if it's not named, it can't be tackled. Um, you you um, at the end of the recording that you made for us for our enhanced program, you pose a really I, 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 confronting question, actually, a really tough question. You really can point the finger at um, an ECT or maybe a mentor watching it. And it is. Uh, what are the, I, I'll quote your words back at you, what what are the impacts of you as in the ECT and your schools not engaging in anti-racist practice? What are the impacts if, you do, if you're not engaged in anti-racist uh, practice? And so um, I'm bound to ask you, what's your own answer to that question, Alison? I think if you're not engaged in it, what you're doing is knowingly allowing harm to continue. And I, I don't say that lightly. Um, it's, to experience racism at any stage of your life means that you are suffering and you are if you know about this and look at your students and just think I don't have the time I don't have the energy I don't have whatever you're doing them a massive disservice but what you're also doing is not supporting them not protecting them and not treating them with the the kind of um, respect and care that they deserve if you don't engage with this, you are knowingly allowing suffering to continue. You're knowingly allowing um, maybe your white kids to go along thinking that, 
we're all equal, everyone gets an equal shot at stuff and, and everything's cool, not recognising that they have a particular privilege and that actually sometimes it's really important for them to recognise that privilege and sometimes to share it or to name it, at least in, in different spaces. And it's the black and brown kids that are going to continue to suffer, usually in silence, because they know that even if they say to a teacher, I've experienced this microaggression, the teacher's going to be like, what's a microaggression? Do you see what I mean? So even if yeah. I feel like young people actually are, are acutely aware of some of these things and have the language and the, sometimes the frameworks to be able to deal with it, but they're dismissed because their teachers don't know this. Mm. And then racism is taught is treated like every other kind of poor behaviour or bullying incident. We know that um, Stephen, uh, the McPherson report, mm. We know that it, it was um, it made school it mandated that schools had to record racism like yeah. racist incidents and now they don't have to do that anymore. So we've got no idea really of the scale of racism that that, that young people are experiencing in school. But things like the um, the Ronnie Mead report and the YMCA report um, mm. tell us really clearly like ninety five percent of kids are hearing racial slurs more or less every day, and if that is happening. And in your school and you're doing nothing about it, you are knowingly allowing people to be harmed and to suffer. And if they are feeling like that and experiencing that, how are they meant to engage with your lesson and learn? If you think about Maslow's hierarchy, their psychological safety needs are not being met and therefore they're not going to be able to access or at least give the attention to your beautifully planned lesson as you know they deserve to. It's it's not okay. And if you care about social justice and you care about equity and diversity, then it means that you have to actively do something. Being anti-racist is an active stance. It is not something that's just passive, like, oh, if a petition comes up, I'll sign it. Or if it's Black History Month, I might read a book. That's not enough. Like if you're working with young people, you have to be responsible for making sure that the future that they inherit is one better than the one that you were in. And that's just it. It's a, a really powerful, I think, a really powerful last line. Um, and, you know, it, it, I like the way that you touched on the definition of anti-racism there, because for people that are really new to, to this topic, I think that definition is hugely important. Which, you know, the difference between passively sort of supporting something and taking a responsibility in your everyday life, in every interaction to challenge racism when it comes up are, are two um, very, very different things. And I, I think that was the, the first important step for me in recognising um, that. So I think that's a really uh, powerful concept for people. This of all topics is probably going to be really hard for me to now ask you uh, what you would write on a post-it note, but because it's a feature of the show, I'm going to have a go at it nevertheless. So we give all our guests on, uh, on the podcast a post-it note to write some advice on. What would you like to write on your post-it note and who would uh, you like to give it to? So I did have a really good think about this because I feel like I, I'm quite good at giving advice to all my students, but um, being asked <laughs> to like write on a post-it is quite difficult. But I, what I came with or what I um, decided on is to speak up and speak out even if your voice shakes. So nice. trying to get people to say something rather than feel uncomfortable being silent. Like speak up, speak out, even if your voice shakes. And I would give it to everybody who works in a school. Um, to just try and empower them to recognise that they've got, you know, we always recognise that we have an, uh, a responsibility and an opportunity to influence young people, but we've also got the opportunity to influence and, and support one another. And for me, if a white teacher, it's always me that has to say, sorry, excuse me, that's not okay, or sorry, excuse me, you've forgotten this. 
And imagine the power of a white teacher saying, actually, excuse me, like for me, and it has happened a few times in my practice and in my career, and even while I've been here at UCL, um, where somebody has stood up and said something that needed to be said, but not because it directly impacted them, right? Mm. So they were the ally and they did something that changed things, but it didn't have to come from me all of the time. And I feel like, you know, the black and brown children that you may teach, seeing you engage actively and um, kind of positively with anti-racism as a white teacher changes things for them. Um, and it would be the same for your colleagues and even with the white teachers. Like if you're a white teacher and you've got white kids and they see you engaging with anti-racism, they'll be like, wow, maybe this is something that we should like care about or be part of or whatever. Um, so I feel like we all just need to do a little bit more of that. And I, I kind of think that this works for all levels of anti-discrimination work, whether it's anti-LGBTQIA, whether it's anti-disability, whether it's anti-sexism, like it requires us to take the most important step, which is to take a deep breath and to speak out. Um, because when it's spoken out and when you've used language that people have to engage with, something has to be done. But if you keep silent, nothing is going to happen. I love the poetry of uh, that line. I think that's one of our best post-it notes today, um, Alison. I absolutely love the poetry of that post-it note as, as well as the meaning behind it. So thank you very much for that. Yeah, and, and, and we could talk forever, I think, Alison, but we do hear a bell ringing. We are a staff room, um, and that means that, um, although I think your coffee might have gone cold, I've just found this oat milk that uh, we're going to put in your coffee for you. <laughs> Sorry about the failure to supply the biscuits as well. Um, Alison, it's been uh, a real education and a pleasure to uh, listen to you this morning. Uh, thank you ever so much for giving up uh, your time to talk to us on this podcast, but also all that work you did on putting that video together for us, uh, for our enhanced program. I'm, I'm absolutely certain that uh, you've set us off on a path to improve our program more generally, and that's what we need to do. Um, and we might come back to you for further advice on that. I'm sure you'll be willing to offer it. But for now, at least, uh, thank you. Thank you ever so much. You're more than welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you both so much. Our thanks go to Alison Wiggins, an anti-racist educator and lecturer in education at UCL, for sharing coffee and a chocolate digestive with us this week in the ECF staff room. Please do get in touch with us if you think you would like to chat with us about your ECF experience. In the meantime, do join us soon for a biscuit and a chat with another colleague in the ECF staff room. If you've enjoyed this episode, there's more where that came from. Search IOE podcast from wherever you get your podcasts to find episodes of the ECF staff room, as well as more podcasts from the IOE. And a quick favour before you go. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, we'd really appreciate it if you could give the IOE podcast a rating. Five stars would be nice if you're enjoying the show. And that will help us to reach more people who are interested in hearing what the ECF staff room is all about. Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast.